Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. It's May 19th, 2022, and unless you've been living under a rock, we have a lot of inflation. Today, we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve and money creation, but first, let me throw some numbers at you. Last month, we had an an inflation rate of 8.5%, and now we're down to about 8.3% by the latest, uh, compared to the average rate of inflation, which is approximately 2%. That is a big jump. We're going to explore that and how that's even possible. And it's my pleasure today to be talking to the former president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve, Thomas Honig. He is now a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and is so cool that he's one of the characters, the central characters of the book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Honig is the guy who was right about the dangers of our monetary policy in the last decade when everyone was celebrating this easy money. You won't be surprised that he was among the few that correctly predicted the mess we're in now. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you, and uh, thank you for the very nice introduction. (laughs) So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, I think your your generation is beginning to learn them uh, in the sense that uh, there are no free lunches. Um, There was a decade in the United States where money was, for some, nearly free. Uh, and for other very low and extended uh, well beyond the crisis that it was meant to heal, which was the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And when you do that, you, um, my words, uh, you distort uh, how the economy operates. Uh, You distort how our precious resources are allocated. And um, we actually did suffer a great deal of inflation even before our current eight and a half percent. Those inflationary pressures were in assets, um, not just the stock market, where if you were lucky enough to be in, you you made a lot of money for a long time, but in housing and in real estate. And in fact, inflation that was pretty severe during that period put the affordability of housing out of the hands of many, even though they had very low interest rates, the cost of those houses went up dramatically. So the the fact of the matter is you you don't get something for nothing. And what really creates wealth in an economic system is its productivity and the goods it produces and is able to produce uh, over a long period of time without without inflation. And that comes from good investment, uh, from good education and learning and basic fundamental principles of an economic system. So that's kind of the lesson that uh, you're in the process of learning now uh, as we go through this very difficult time of high price inflation. And um, I would say a real reduction in our disposable income. 
And with that, let's jump into how that's possible. In Christopher Leonard's book, The Lord's Vizi Money, the book that I quoted at the beginning, we learned that in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008, in 2010 to be precise, you became the head of the Federal Reserve Regional Bank in Kansas City, and you sat on the Fed's most powerful policy committee, the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC. It's in that job that you became known as Mr. No for having one of the longest running strings of no votes in the Fed's history. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, can you tell us what the role of the FOMC is? Uh, Certainly. Um, The Federal Open Market Committee is a statutorily created committee that is combined, uh, a combination, I should say, of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, which are in Washington, D.C., and are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And they have seven votes among them, uh, seven members, seven votes. The other members are five members uh, of the, from the banks, regional Federal Reserve banks, like the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Um, And those members also have a vote. They have a minority vote as a group, uh, but they nevertheless uh, have a vote. And then there are uh, seven other participants who are the non-voting members from the regional banks. And those votes rotate over time. And that committee um, is responsible for setting monetary policy. And by setting monetary policy, I mean... uh, this committee determines the amount of new money that will be created by its purchases of assets. Normally, those assets are government securities. And more recently, since the financial great financial crisis, I should say, they also included mortgage-backed securities. And when they buy those assets, uh, that committee, I should say, is does so by creating literally from nothing a payment method. It's a liability called a Federal Reserve note or a Federal Reserve um, reserve account with uh, 24 major primary dealer banks. And that, that creating that liability pays for the government asset or the mortgage-backed security it buys. And that puts a whole new set of base money, what's called new money, into the economic system uh, that then can be spent um, uh, over time and is designed to facilitate uh, the transactions and growth in the real economy that actually creates the wealth. So that's a somewhat complicated explanation, but it's pretty difficult to get it more simple than that. Uh, Maybe someone can, but... That's how I kind of explain it. And when you were casting all of these no votes, what were the policies or what was the policy you were trying to stop? Well, one of the things that uh, the Federal Reserve was created to do was in a crisis, and we had a crisis in 2008-9, its ability to create this money provides new liquidity into a system that is is uh, under very severe uh, pressures from a lack of confidence, lack of money being available. And so the 
central bank can then create that money and provide that extra liquidity to get you through the crisis. And that's what it, that's kind of the theory almost of central banking. And during that period, I uh, supported it. In 2010, though, the U.S. economy was starting its recovery. It actually started its recovery, I believe, in the third quarter of 2009. And in 2010, it was underway. But unemployment in the United States was still high. It was above 9%. And the uh, policy uh, prescription that was led by, at that time, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, was, well, we can help that by printing more money, just by, even though we're not in a crisis, we'll just flood the market uh, with money that banks will then have to lend. And because it will push interest rates and returns down lower, then people will have to invest in more risky activities and we will, we will generate new activities and therefore a faster recovery. And when uh, I looked at that, I said, well, the economy can produce so much in a given quarter or given year, and we are in recovery. Yes, it will take time. We had a very serious downturn. If you flood it with money, you will cause us later on, and even now, you will cause uh, asset values to rise and prices at, at some point to rise as well. And that is, in a sense, a tax because goods that once cost a dollar now cost a dollar twenty, and so forth. And so you are having to pay that out of your income, and that's a form of tax because the government just flooded the market with so much money. And so my objections were that uh, we would, by arbitrarily lowering interest rates of all kinds, arbitrarily encouraging people to take on greater uh, risk assets, uh, lowering interest rates below the return available in the real economy, we would distort the economy. We would cause asset inflation. We would cause a misallocation of resources. That is, uh, you would spend more on favored goods by that are interest rate sensitive as opposed to longer term investments, perhaps. And therefore, you were going beyond your um, mandate. You were going beyond what you were created for. And that is to provide liquidity and to provide a a, a adequate amount of money, but not so much that you caused interest rates to arbitrarily become too low and distort the economy. And so I voiced those objections uh, and tried my best to explain myself to the, to the other members of the Open Market Committee. Some did agree with me. Some of them were non-voting members, however. Uh, others might have agreed with me, but decided that, no, they would go... Uh, and see if this new experiment worked. And I felt very strongly, having lived through a crisis of the 80s, where people lost everything because the Federal Reserve had inflated values by printing too much money, I chose to say, no, uh, that is not uh, a long-run solution. That's a short-run solution with very dire long-run consequences. And therefore, I felt obligated to say no as a voting member. Uh, and I, my comment was, if I wasn't supposed to vote what I strongly understood, uh, not just believed, but understood and had experience, then I was not doing my job. So I voted no in each case. And you briefly touched on this, but what are the different ways that the Fed creates money? 
Well, it it really has one method. I mean, it really does buy assets. Now, it's the kind of assets that uh, changes, perhaps. Um, for example, it can buy short-term, overnight or very short-term uh, treasuries, say three-month treasuries, uh, or it can buy, buy 10 10 year treasuries, or it can buy 30 year treasuries. But in doing that, it affects interest rates for those uh, particular assets. For example, as you know, if you um, uh, raise the price of a treasury, that lowers the interest rate. So by increasing the demand for those treasuries by the Federal Reserve, it not only puts more money in the economy, but it raises their price and lowers interest rates. That, that uh, is designed to stimulate the economy. The other way that they did it was they bought uh, mortgage-backed securities. Now, that's uh, even more rare because it's buying a particular type of asset, mortgages, which is uh, in the private economy and favors mortgages over, say, corporate bonds and so forth. But it can do it, and it buys it from those dealers, uh, and it puts money in those dealers' accounts. Then those dealers can then buy more more. Uh, if they want, they can buy more government securities that may be issued by the government, or they can buy more mortgage-backed securities themselves, or they can buy other assets. So it's this process of putting this new money out, lowering interest rates, uh, creating uh, uh, demand for these kinds of assets, and lowering interest rates that is designed to stimulate the economy. And that's the process they go through. Um in its simplest, in its simplest form. Um, and that's what the Federal Reserve did through a good part of 2010 to 2015, in which its balance sheet, that is the assets that it purchased and the new money that it created went from, uh, approximately, uh, a trillion dollars, uh, in 2008 to two trillion dollars in 2010 to four and a half trillion dollars by 2015. And that was an enormous increase in the uh, the Fed's uh, new money created. In fact, if, I think it's described in the book that it took a hundred years to go from zero to just under a trillion dollars of this uh, of its balance sheet assets. Uh, it took uh, literally another four years, three years to go from a trillion dollars to four and a half trillion dollars. So you can see how much money of uh, Federal Reserve money that was put into the economy in that very short period of time, which was designed to lower interest rates, stimulate demand, and create a, a booming economy. And what it did is it created uh, a economy that was asset-wise inflationary. And over that period, just to make it clear, um, real income did not Real wages really did not increase much. Productivity did not increase much at all. Nothing compared to what it did in 20, uh, in 1990s after a recession. So the benefits were rather, uh, marginal and many studies have documented that. And so whether we really gained a whole lot from that other than asset inflation, uh, and eventually as we see today, price inflation can be debated, but I think it's becoming more evident that those actions were as much, um, in my opinion, harmful as they were beneficial. So you mentioned that initially the idea behind this move was due to the high unemployment. Why did the Fed continue to do this 
after we were so far into recovery. I mean, 2015, if we were recovering in the last quarter of 2009, that is a long time. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, but the, the, what they were hoping to do is when, when they started this, I mean, the unemployment rate was over 9%. And they felt that that was too high and that they had a dual mandate uh, to bring it down. And I understand the dual mandate, but I also understand the limits of what policy can do. And it takes time to rebuild economy after a major crash. Uh, investments have to be uh, remade. Uh, confidence has to be rebuilt. Uh, that takes time. And their, their hope, uh, those who voted for this, uh, their expectation, hope maybe is the right word, was that this would, this, their actions would accelerate this investment and would accelerate uh, this return uh, to the, to a stronger market and low unemployment. Uh, but it also, it did other things that I think uh, actually did not help that process. And for example, by, by lowering uh, interest rates, nominal rates to such low levels compared to the return on capital, it caused people to engage in speculative activities, non-productive speculative activities. Um, the market has every right to buy back stocks, perhaps, but if you're buying back stock rather than investing in new investments and uh, increasing capital, increasing productivity, you're not actually helping things. And that was a good part of what was going on during that period of 2010 to 2017, 18, and so forth. And... So, okay, I just got out of principles of macro this semester. Um, the Fed also has control over certain interest rates, don't they? Well, they do. Uh, and the way they control those interest rates is through their open market operations. So it's by changing uh, the amount of money they're willing to, to create in the economy. So here's a specific example. If they're buying, uh, say, uh, three-month treasuries, all right? If they mm -hmm. buy those new treasuries and they create the money to do it, uh, that creates an increase in demand for those treasuries. And by doing that, it raises the price of those treasuries. And that, and the inverse of that is it lowers interest rates. Uh, and so by, by engaging in this open market operation, they lower interest rates. And as they do that, they affect interest rates uh, along what's called the yield curve, that is for longer term assets as well. And if they buy 10-year notes, uh, they increase the demand for those notes, they lower the interest rates. And that further affects interest rates along the so-called yield curve for asset for, for borrowing. That is, it affects the, the price of borrowing, which is the interest rates, and it lowers them. And everyone thinks that's a good thing. But if it creates uh, a speculative environment by, by making interest rates so low for so long that people can't get a return from saving in the bank. So why would I save? I will spend uh, and speculate instead uh, trying to make bigger gains. And so you get a much stronger risk uh, market, a much stronger speculative market and greater instability. And it, if you don't have increases in investment in capital goods production, uh, then you will uh, not increase the real wealth of the economy. And over time, you will uh, impinge on wage growth because you can't have good wage growth without real increases in productivity. And so you actually uh, 
harm the very economy you're trying to help. That was my concern. And uh, let me, if I can, take a step back to an earlier period. Uh, the same yes. thing happened in, in the 70s. And you saw a great deal of asset inflation in commercial real estate, in agricultural land, in housing, uh, in the stock market. And as that also over time got worse, you had inflation. And by the end of the 70s, uh, you had very significant asset inflation, very significant price inflation. And when you had that price inflation of 14%, so we think it's high at 8.5%, but at 14%, the, the, the tax, the so-called uh, inflation tax, people not being able to afford you know, food and, and clothing and so forth as well, that brought in Paul Volcker who was the chairman of the Fed, who said, this is this can't go on. And so they, then they stopped increasing the money so, so quickly. And they allowed interest rates to rise. And we had a very serious uh, asset and price uh, deflation or crash. And the harm to the, to the American people was very substantial for a period of time until inflation was brought back down. So the point of, of that was here we are in 2010, doing the same thing over a long period of time. And now inflation, price inflation, we've had asset inflation for some time. Now we have price inflation. And now the Fed is being forced to raise interest rates. That is, not put as much money into the economy. In fact, allowing their balance sheet to shrink. And so interest rates are going up uh, very quickly. And you already see the reaction in the market with the stock market falling, the housing market slowing, and that will probably get worse over the course of the next year. Everything I read about inflation and asset bubbles, it seems as though it always starts with the stock market and other sorts of securities assets. Is that because that is maybe the closest thing to banks and the Fed? Why does it always start there? Well, it actually, it's it doesn't... It's, it, it's easily identified there is one way I would tell you, because, mm-hmm. um, for example, how, housing prices in 2012 uh, started rising and they rose for the rest of the decade. Um, and just just as stock uh, stock market prices rose, just as commercial real estate prices rose. But they are more identifiable because you see it on the news every day. The stock market went up 100 points or 200 points or 1,000 points, or the stock market went down 1,000 points. You don't see on a daily basis, oh, housing prices went up uh, $200 uh, uh, over this period or or a dollar a square foot or however you want to measure it. That isn't reported every day, so it isn't as obvious to you. And I think it, if it were more obvious that people did report it, I think people would be be struck by just how broad-based inflation can be uh, w- uh, among assets as well as among goods and services. And so you, you, it happens uh, almost simultaneously, but what's reported is really uh, financial assets, market assets like stocks and so forth. Uh, and so that's what we pay attention to. But it is more broad-based than that. I, I, I'm, history will tell you that. And it turns out with all of 
your inclinations back in 2010 that you were right. The Fed and bond buying and the interest rate policies created so many asset bubbles and inflation generally, as we're seeing today. Um, A quote from the author of that book, Christopher Leonard in Politico from 2021, quote, on all of these points, Honig was correct. And on all of these points, he was ignored. We're now living in the world that he warned about, end quote. Why do you think that you were alone in this opposition? Or even if you had a few who agreed, why do you think you were constantly the only one voting no? Well, I think it's partly because um, people have, they tend to focus on the short run. They tend to focus on the immediate. And until you've had the experience of having lived through this, uh, you you don't see it coming. You're not as uh, attuned to it. And fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, I lived through the, I, I was, I was in, banking supervision uh, and economics at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City uh, in the in these seven in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, where I saw all this emerge. I mean, there was a very easy monetary policy in the late 60s, 70s. The same pattern followed. Uh, and people said, well, we, we'll, we'll make sure that everything is taken care of in the immediate. So we lower interest rates. Um, expecting, hoping to see th- and things improve. Uh, and by doing that too much, we saw asset prices and inflation rise. So I had that experience. So here I was in 2010, seeing the very same actions being initiated that had taken place in an earlier decade. And when I saw this, I said, wait a minute, this is, this is, I understand this is short run. This you think is going to help. And it may in fact give you a, short-term boost, but over the long run, you are going to cause uh, major asset, I call it distortions, misallocations of resources, but it eventually leads to lower productivity, higher asset inflation, and eventually uh, uh, higher uh, risk, I should say, eventually having higher price inflation. And that is what that's what occurred. Now, I I did not, you know, know when we would have uh, price inflation. I thought it would be sooner than now, but uh, the fact of the matter is, I, I I did anticipate that we would have serious asset inflation. I did anticipate that we would have uh, when we had to deal with that that the markets would turn, uh, they would panic and turn negative very quickly, which they are doing. Uh, so that it was really that experience. You can study all the econ- all the economics, but unless you have that experience, you tend to say, "Well, I'll put that off." And let me give you an example of that. It has been taught in macroeconomic and monetary policy courses. Maybe you were taught this that monetary policy acts with long and variable lags, so that the actions yeah. you take today won't fully uh, work through the system for. 18 months, two years even. And that is pretty well documented. But in those, in those moments when you think you can accomplish something in the short run, you tend to put that off and think that that's okay. We'll, we'll worry about that later. And you'll hear them say, we're, we're not tightening now because we're going to ensure that this recovery is maintained 
we're not tightening now because we don't need to, because we have the tools to take care of it should the inflation uh, become a problem. And those become excuses for not acting. The fact of the matter is that there is no discipline on the creation of fiat money. That is, the money that the Federal Reserve creates, the dollars that the Federal Reserve creates, other than the discipline of that committee. There's no gold standard. There's no other kind of constraint other than the discipline of that committee. Therefore, that committee has to say no sometimes when it doesn't seem obvious that they should say no. When things, uh, when unemployment is high, but you're in recovery and you know you're going to have those numbers come down, you get it, you get impatient. So you think you can accelerate it. Those are the kinds of disciplines that the open market committee who, um, uh, has that responsibility has to take on. And if they, if they delay it, uh, then they will have to do more later. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in today. And we also learned that one of the biggest concerns, which is what we're seeing now, is that once, if you implement this sort of policy in a time when you need it, due to all the lags, it will actually go into effect and will feel the consequences or benefits, I guess, in a time when we're in the opposite part of the business cycle. And so instead of kind of smoothing out the trajectory of the economy, it will just create such a volatile economy. And that is not really what the goal was in the first place. That's right. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we see this today, really, because inflation is at a 40-year high. And for the last year, we've heard the current Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, and many people on the left, on the right, all over the place, saying that the rise in prices that we're experiencing is not real inflation, but it was due to the problem with the global supply chains, the pandemic, supply checkpoints, shortfalls in lumber and cars, a drought in Taiwan, all these other factors. What is wrong with these scenarios, and why do you think we have inflation? Well, first of all, there there is an element of truth to what they're saying. That is, you can have uh, temporary inflation, transitory, whatever you want to call it, due to supply disruptions. I mean, that's part of that. That's part of an economic system. So if if energy is in short supply, um, that price will go up. But that's a, a change in the relative price. And other prices then have to adjust down if you only have so much money. So it does have effects on relative prices. You do see some prices go up. And in fact, you can see... Uh, Inflation increase as you uh, as you rationalize supply and demand when there is an overall supply reduction because you still have you have fewer goods and the same amount of money you're going to have inflation but that's and that I I I give I understand that but that is more transitory what happens though is if you continue to print money in the hopes that that's going to stimulate the supply increase in supply when in fact it's being disrupted because of pandemics and because of wars, then you are going to see uh, continued inflation for well beyond the supply disruptions from the change in relative prices now becomes a general price increase because you're printing too much money. And let me, let me put that in kind of context for you. But the pandemic was, was serious. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, 
dismiss that at all. It was very serious. It was a very strong dis- supply disruptor. Uh, but the economy and the economy felt that in March 2020. But the economy started its recovery uh, in the summer of 2020. And even if you wanted to say, yes, we'll have some, we want to make sure there is a, um, a period of time when we continue to stimulate the economy, you would do it maybe to August or September. So starting in March of 2020, when the pandemic hit, the Federal Reserve began a very extensive increase in money. It uh, was buying $120 billion of government securities and mortgage-backed securities per month, creating new money to pay for that. And so it did it from March through June, through July and August, and the economy started recovering. But it continued that crisis policy of $120 billion per month, so that's over a trillion dollars per year of new money from, say, August of 2020 through December of 2021, and still had a very easy monetary policy, creating new money at a, at a slower rate, but still creating newer money, and keeping interest rates near zero till 20, till March of 2022. So that uh, was a major factor contributing to the, the continuation of inflation well past the, uh, the adjustments that would have taken place in the supply chain. Uh, and the change in relative prices. That's number one. Number two, the government, understandably, wanted to help people at the time of the pandemic. So it passed the CARES Act, and that provided money to unemployed. But it also provided supplemental payments to people that who were employed, who had jobs making as much as $100,000 a year. They were giving them money, money for nothing. They were also providing money to businesses. Some of them needed it. Some of them didn't. But they were providing lots of money on the order of uh, $2 trillion. Then in March of 2021, it created another legislative package that continued spending that kind of money. So as the economy was recovering, to make sure that it didn't lack, didn't slow down, didn't show any slack, both the government increased its spending and the Federal Reserve increased its purchases of that government's debt to accommodate that spending. And it was almost bar- all paid for by the Federal Reserve uh, indirectly by its purchases of government securities. So you increase the amount of spending not only for the, not only to maintain the demand that was there, but increase the demand for goods that were not, uh, not being produced at, at a uh, fast enough rate to accommodate that increase in demand because not just because of supply disruption, just because there was so much more demand and so much more money going after those goods that now you have this inflationary breakout. And to contain that will take some pretty strict constraint on the part of the Federal Reserve creating that money. And I don't know about the federal government's uh, ability to contain its spending going forward. Now, what the federal government did is it increased its spending by almost 50% between 2019 and 2020. And then it kept that spending high in 2021. So that has created enormous demand. 
The Federal Reserve accommodated that by buying the debt that helped pay that spending, by the, that is by creating new money. And so we have a lot of inflation momentum in the economy for both asset and goods and services. And that will take a fairly strict uh, restraint on, tar- on the part of the Federal Reserve and perhaps the government to offset that over the next year to two years. Uh, and I think we will have inflation uh, to deal with for, for at least that period of time, depending on what actions they take and how firm they are in their actions going forward. Can you explain why we're only getting inflation now? Well, higher rates of inflation when the Fed has had this policy of easy money for so long and when the Fed for the past decade or so was saying that they were having a hard time getting enough inflation into the economy, whatever that means? Well, I think, first of all, they have, they have had inflation from almost the start of the, of the policy, and I call it asset inflation, which is very serious. So, so what the money was coming in the economy, uh, now the, uh, first of all, uh, there, we had more. We had uh, a global economy. Um, there was new labor coming into the market. So for a period of time, uh, there was a, a very susta- very sustained increase in supply that, of goods and services that helped contain that. But over that period, we had inflation. We had house we had house price inflation from 2012 through 2020 that was double digit in some in many cases. We had so that money that was coming in into the financial sector, right? They were providing this money into the financial sector was um, being used to increase asset values and the stock market. And to give you an example, uh, perhaps not a particularly good example, but it's the fact that you you put all this money out there. Um, if you did a, a, a stock buyback, and this was described in, in Chris Leonard's book, but I'll simplify it. And you are, um, you, you have assets and you borrow against those assets as a manager of that company. So you have a hundred dollars of assets, a hundred dollars of equity, uh, and you're producing a good that provides you ability to pay that dividend to the investor. And then you learn that, wait, wait a minute, I can borrow for virtually nothing, 2%, let's say. And so let's say I'm paying a 4% on my, or 5% on my stock. Well, I can borrow that money. I can buy back my stock and raise its price and pay, and pay, and pay 2% for the borrowings that I use to buy back that stock and reduce my cost of, of, of my uh, uh, debt and my capital. But I, and, and by, and raise the price of my stock, raise my return on equity, but I haven't produced another thing. I haven't produced anything new. I haven't, I don't need to invest in new capital. I don't invest in new employment. So what you're doing is you're leveraging up the economy through these financial assets and through this very low interest rate environment that the Fed created over a period of time. And that, that creates leverage and it, and it, uh, reallocates wealth, but it doesn't produce real improvements in the productivity or the real asset in your economy. And that's what you, that's the, it takes time for that to work through the economy in terms of seeing the distortions that it occurs 
with lower productivity, which happened during the decade between 2010 and 20, 2018. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard explanation to understand. I, I would, I guess, but it's, it's one example of the distortions that putting too much money does to your economy. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but before I ask you the final question, I'll leave us with this one principle I learned in Principles of Macro, which is the three sources of economic growth, long run, are resources, technology, and institutions. Institutions meaning rule of law, private property rights, things like that, not monetary policy. So you're right. In the short run, it does things. In the long run, it creates inflation. Um, that was my biggest takeaway from this year. Yeah. Well, and that's that's true. I mean, you know, you, people create wealth by, and the institutions that, like you say, rule of law, property rights, uh, uh, and the innovations that, that incent people, you know, the, the ambitions that incent people and the resources that are available create wealth. Money, money is a facilitator that allows exchange to take place more easily and therefore is kind of a grease to the skids. But if you grease, anything you grease too much will malfunction. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens when you print too much money. It just really harms your economic system. It undermines institutions that you've described. It undermines the allocation of those resources. Uh, it, it can be extremely harmful as well as beneficial. Like any tool, if it's used properly, it's very beneficial. If it's used incorrectly or, or in abuse, it's harmful. So what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Um, well, I guess when I was young and inexperienced, I thought that money could solve more problems than it can. <laughs> and I've certainly learned over the, over the long uh, history of my uh, experience that uh, that's not the case. You have to have more fundamental things that build wealth than just the printing of money. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.